Anyway, back to James 4. We were in verses 1 to 10 last week, but it's such a rich chap, uh, section that we're taking two weeks to go through it. Um, and <clears throat> last week we talked about sort of the main point of the passage, James 4, 1 to 10, or James 4, 1 to 12, really. And this week we're going to go back and sort of pick up the leftovers um, and, uh, and gather up the things that we weren't able to talk about. There's still more, but we're going to le- keep it to two weeks. But we're going to uh, uh, include in, us, in this verses 11 and 12, which are really part of the same passage, which we didn't even read last week, and, and add that to our... Uh, job of, of uh, investigating today. So uh, really five lessons, five things that I want to uh, dive into uh, from this passage. But first let's begin by reading James 4, 1 to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, so... Let's begin with the subject of prayer. There are two lessons in this passage on prayer that I'd like to draw to your attention. The first is in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen already how so much of what James talks about in his epistle is based it seems, on what his older brother Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it shall be given. And now his brother James gives us the flip side of this. You do not have because you do not ask. If God answers prayer, this implies that God doesn't answer people when people don't pray. This isn't because he's not willing or he doesn't care about his people. Your father knows what you need before you ask him, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's because God wants his people to recognize their need and recognize when, and recognize that he is our helper. You know, in Matthew chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount, we find the story of the storm that Jesus stilled. It's a great picture of the Lord waiting for his people to ask before he answers. The disciples did all they could to save themselves from the storm, as you remember. And by the time they woke up Jesus, who was asleep in the boat, they were exasperated. Don't you care, Lord, that we're going to die? Jesus, you remember, was asleep. He was completely at peace. His disciples were in a crisis. Their lives were in danger. But Jesus was not going to help them until they came to the end of their own resources and turned to him. He was waiting patiently for them to pray. He was waiting for them to be desperate enough to ask. I think most of us have seen this kind of thing happen in our lives. We're working hard to solve some problem in our lives, but to no avail. And then at some point we get desperate enough that we remember God. Lord, please help me. And he does. And then we chide ourselves for taking so long to remember to pray. The problem is, like the disciples, we so quickly forget that we have a God who is always watching us in love. And who hears us with ears of love. And who has every power in the universe at his disposal. This is why Jesus called his disciples, O oh, men of little faith, when they finally woke him. It's embarrassing to admit, but like the disciples, we forget about God. We forget about his love for us. We forget about his presence with us. We forget about his power to help us, no matter how our, big our problem is. We forget that we have a God who loves us so dearly that he sent his own son to die for our sins. And that he has the power to help us, whether it's the smallest trouble or the largest trouble. 
and we don't recognize feelings that God's not listening or that he doesn't care or that he's disgusted with us as lies of the evil one. And so we have not because we ask not. The second principle of prayer that we see in this passage is from verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here James refers to when we do pray, but we pray wrongly. We ask wrongly. We ask for the sake of our own fleshly desires. I want to tell you the story of my first long, intense prayer session. I was 17 years old and I'd just become a Christian. And I had a really big championship soccer game to play in the next day. And I spent a whole hour on my knees praying that we would win. But I never said, your will be done, Lord. And God loved me too much to grant my request because it was all about my own desires. Can you pray, your will be done, Lord? I don't mean can you say the words or can you say them when you're praying. I mean, can you really make that request of the Lord. For that's what it is. It is a request. It is not just giving God permission to not do what we're asking him to do. Praying your will be done is specifically asking God not to do what you're asking him to do if it is not his will. It is saying, Lord, you are all wise. You know better than me. And what I'm asking of you may not be the best thing for me or for your kingdom. And if it's not, I don't want you to answer my prayer. I really want you to do your will instead. And if we can't pray, your will be done then we are praying wrongly. Just like James says here, we are praying to spend it on our own passions. I've heard people say, and I'm sure you have too, that they tried prayer and it didn't work. Well, if that's ever someone's attitude towards prayer, it means that they are doing exactly what James says. They have the wrong motivations in their prayer. Prayer doesn't work. You know, you see bumper stickers that say prayer works. Oh, prayer doesn't work. God works. Prayer isn't a magic way of getting what you want. Prayer is communicating what's on your heart to God. And God is the one who works or doesn't work. How many times we asked our children when they were young, why didn't you ask? We would have said yes if you, for, to this if you had asked. Why didn't you ask? 
But you know why they didn't ask? Because, I'm not saying that they always did this, but my, our children were sinners just like everybody else's. Why didn't they ask? Because they didn't want to risk the possibility that we could say no. They wanted what they wanted, and they weren't willing to not have it. And that's exactly what James is talking about. When we're not willing to not have what we want, then that is an idol for us. No matter what that thing is, even if it's a good thing. This is what James is talking about in verse 3 when he says, You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. And when we have that attitude, is it any wonder that God doesn't answer our prayers and give us what we want in that circumstance? The next lesson I'd like to point out is in the passage, uh, in, in the verse 4, which some scholars actually point to as the best summary of the whole letter. James 4.4. 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or to put it another way, a person who lives like the world is no friend of God. Now in the Bible, there is some tension between passages which acknowledge the conflict that resides in the heart of every believer between the old sinful nature and the new nature wrought by the Holy Spirit. And those passages, on the other hand, which say we must be pure and single-minded and not double-minded. So we have these two kinds of passages in the Bible. And the New Testament acknowledges that this tension exists. And that there will inevitably be in every believer's life a struggle with sin. A good example is Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It reminds us of the two women in the book of Proverbs. The woman wisdom who's calling out and the woman folly who's calling out. And each one of them appealing to the, to the young man and, and tr urging them to come in and take what they have for them. And we are, all, even as believers, we are torn. There's, there are two sides of us that are at war with one another. Jesus himself said, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so you see, we have these... These two things pulling us, and yet the Bible also says that, that you can't just have both. 
Paul says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? In 2 Corinthians 5, these two things don't belong together, but yet they reside in us. James reflects this call to live out our faith and this warning that faith which has no fruit is indeed false faith. Whoever lives according to the ways of the world, he says in this verse 4, is actually not God's friend, but God's enemy. Now, it's easy to read many portions of James and feel like he's got a very high standard for a person to reach, to even consider himself a Christian. But if we read James in the larger context of what he's saying, we have to remember that things aren't going well in the churches that he's writing to. It seems like many are living more like the world than they are like Christ. And so, you know, in the face of the fact that people in the church are, are living in, in an unchristlike way, James writes, and what does he say? Does he condemn them all as non-believers because he sees this lack of fruit? Not at all. He calls them to repent. And that shows us that in the mind of James, it is very possible for true Christians to live in a manner that is not consistent with the way of Christ. But they must be called to repent. They must not be satisfied and, and content and at ease in this unwholesome frame of mind. They must not be allowed and they must not allow themselves to act as if it's okay to for people who are Christians to, to live like the world. When people live like this or, or think like this or act like this, they need to be disturbed. They need to be called out of their hypocrisy. Excuse me. When a person in the church lives like the world lives, the fact is, he or she begins to look like a person whose profession of faith may not be genuine. And since we can't see into each other's hearts, we can't really tell what's going on in there. All we know is that we're concerned. And in his epistle, James raises both of these possibilities regarding a person who is living contrary to Christ. The person might not be a true believer. Being worldly can mean that that person's actually an enemy of God, even though he's claiming to be a friend. Or the person might be a true believer who needs to repent, who needs to humble himself before the Lord. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, James says in this passage. So, instead of wondering where we stand with Christ, James calls us 
to prove our sincer- the sincerity of our faith by repenting of the ways that our lives are out of sync with Christ. To submit to God, to resist the devil, to draw near to God, to cleanse our hearts, to purify our hearts, I'm sorry, cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, to be wretched and mourn and weep, to turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom, to humble ourselves before the Lord so that he might exalt us. Now let's get a little bit into these last two verses of James 4, 1 to 12, verse 11 and 12. The first thing is, this is, a, uh, this is about speaking evil of one another. Verse 11, the first part of verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Well, what does it mean to speak evil? You know, we can't just import all of our own opinions and thoughts into that word. We have to look at the scriptures and see what it actually condemns and what it doesn't. The fact is, we read the Bible and the letters of Paul, he severely criticizes some people who used to be a part of the church and have left. That couldn't be what he's talking about then. He also, Paul also speaks very bluntly, as we saw when we went through 2 Corinthians together, about those who are trying to lead the church astray, who have come in, but with the goal of leading them to a different kind of gospel and a different kind of Jesus. He speaks very bluntly about them as he writes to the Corinthians. We see Jesus rebuking his disciples all over the place. So we can see that James isn't talking about just any kind of criticism of one another. He seems to be talking about a number of kinds of harmful speech. For instance, He's talking about criticizing fellow believers behind their backs. You know, I can't think of any time where we see Jesus or the apostles criticize a believer behind his or her back. There's a lot of criticism face to face. You see that with Jesus and the disciples. You see that in other cases too in the book of Acts. But not behind their backs. It's so much easier to tell someone else other than the person who needs to hear the criticism, isn't it? And I'm guilty of it too. But this is what James is condemning. He also condemns, I think, bringing incorrect or careless accusations against someone. We see that in 1 Peter 2 and 3. And I think it involves challenging legitimate authority. This same word is used in, a, in the Septuagint regarding the, uh, the practice of uh, Miriam and Aaron when they challenged Moses' authority. Not because he was doing anything wrong, but just because they didn't like him being in charge. Jesus says over and over again that we should love one another. 
And when you, we really love someone, we don't want to talk about them to others in a way that diminishes the other person's opinion of the one that we love. And so really here he's just saying love one another in the way that you speak about people, in the way that you speak to people. My wife and I have realized how important, recently, how important this is in the context of the family. We've realized that dads teach their children how to think of and how to treat their mother by the way they think of and treat their wife. And if they show them disrespect, they not only give their children permission to show disrespect to their mother, but they actually teach their children that their mother is not worthy of respect. And the same is true in the other direction, in the respect a mother shows to her husband. And the same is true when it comes to speaking about church leaders or about civil authorities. And that's why the New Testament emphasizes the importance of showing respect to both. Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. So, let us not speak evil against one another. And then the second thing we can get from 11 and 12, which is the second half of 11 and the first half, the first, all of 12, has to do with judging God's law. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Apparently what James is saying here is that when we disobey God's law, we are actually criticizing God's law. We're saying to the watching world that God's law is not worth keeping. We are either a doer of the law, therefore, or a judge of the law. A doer of the law is an advertisement for the law. Commending the law to all around. When we obey, we recommend God's law. We exalt God's law. But when we disobey, we do the opposite. We malign God's law. We badmouth God's law. We declare that God's law is not bad, is not good, and not to be followed. And whether we want to do this or not, we declare that God's that God isn't worth obeying, and that God's word isn't worth heeding. We judge God's law to be unworthy of being followed. We commend disobedience. Now, of course, we don't do this on purpose, but this is the message we send. So, when we judge our neighbor, we are actually judging God's law and ultimately judging God himself. So when our lives are characterized by things like judging or speaking evil of others, we not only throw our own salvation into question, but we ruin our witness to the watching world. Instead of commending Christ to our neighbors, we actually make him look worse. 
and give them an excuse not to, to follow him, but to resist him by our example. And now the last lesson, the last principle that I want to derive from this and something that I feel is very important in this passage and in the whole epistle of James has to do with the centrality of humility. The main thrust of James in his epistle is that a mere profession of faith is not enough. The faith that saves is a living faith. A faith that makes a difference in, li- in our lives. A faith with ma- which manifests itself on how we think and how we act and how we speak and in what we desire. And if we had to summarize the central feature of this transformed life, according to the book of James, it would probably be humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, verse 6. Submit yourselves therefore to God, verse 7. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, verse 10. Deferring, trusting, being willing to be wronged, being willing to ask for help, being alert to one's own weaknesses and one's own need. In some ways, it's hard to imagine how anything could be further from the truth, I'm sorry, further from the philosophy of the world, which calls us to stand up for ourselves and insist on our rights. And yet, even so, it's amazing how people still, even non-believers, still have a soft spot spot in their hearts for true humility. And how people actually naturally dislike someone who complains, or who is cocky, or who is a know-it-all. Now, C.S. Lewis said that humility is really the flip side of love. The person who loves is a humble person. A proud person can't love. A person who's all about himself can't also be all about others. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be exalted. There's only something wrong with pursuing that in the wrong way. Exaltation comes when we humble ourselves, for it's a gift of God. Yesterday, the Poes and the Rices and some of the Cramps and the Lashes went to a memorial service for an old friend whose life exemplifies this very thing. Paul Kukulis was exalted by 500 people at a memorial service and many others who live streamed from places all over the world simply because he was an amazingly humble and loving man who pointed people around him to Jesus. Now I can tell you from personal experience that humility doesn't come easy. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how God humbled him by taking away his sanity for seven years and then restoring it. 
Well, God is in the business of humbling people. He doesn't do it for everyone. But for those he blesses with humility, it is a great blessing. But the process by which God humbles people is usually not a pleasant one. And we often kick against it. And kicking against it itself is a very prideful act. It's like saying, I don't need this. I don't need to be humbled. I can do humility myself. After I graduated from college, I was hired by my church, Fourth Presbyterian in Bethesda, to do youth ministry. And one of the main kids in my, the youth group that I you know, was supposed to minister to was a boy named Rob. And he had grown up in the church, and he was popular, and he was funny, and he was good-looking, and it, everything about him, everybody rallied around him. He was the center of the attention. And though we are now Facebook friends, I hadn't spoken to Rob for 43 years since I left the ministry there and went to seminary until yesterday. And after greeting him, I took this 56-year-old man by the shoulders and I said to him, Rob, when I worked with you many years ago, you were so into having fun and so into being funny that I couldn't tell if there was anything at all going on deep down in your soul. I'm so glad to see that you have lived a life of faith. And you know what he said to me? He said, you know what happened to me? God gave me a daughter with epilepsy that required two really scary brain surgeries. And that broke me. And I experienced an intimacy and a connection with God that I never had before. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, that's, that story could be multiplied thousands of times. Humility doesn't come cheaply or easily. God does it, but he does it usually through suffering. God humbles the proud through suffering, and then God exalts the humble. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us. We are such proud people, and humility does not come naturally to us, dear Lord. But you're so patient and so kind and so persistent in your work with us. And we thank you for your spirit who is at work in us. And we pray that you would humble us. We want to be people, Lord, that you want to exalt. That you want to just lift up. But we know, Lord, that you lift up those who are humble. And we pray that you would humble us, even if it takes hard things. And we pray, dear Lord, that in the midst of it, you would help us not to resent it or resist it, but that we would be grateful 
for your kind gift of trouble and hardship and pain, knowing the good fruit that it produces. And Lord, in all of it, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can have confidence in his love for us because he's proven it on the cross. And because he did not withhold himself, we know that he won't withhold any good thing from us. And we pray that you would help us, therefore, O Lord, not to doubt you, not to resent you, not to believe lies that you just don't care about us. But Lord, help us to be people who walk in the knowledge, in the confidence of the love of our Jesus, our Redeemer for us that will last for all eternity. And Lord, now we come to the table to celebrate this great love and this great act of love upon the cross. And we pray that you would meet us here in the sacrament. And Lord, as we feed upon the bread and the wine, we pray that we would be feeding in our hearts upon Jesus himself. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.